Happy Lord's Day to you all. My name is David Lundberg. Um, for those of you who I may not have had the chance to meet, or if you're perhaps new this morning, uh, I'm a deacon here at Grace Christian Fellowship, and uh, Paul and Jeff have given me the, the great privilege and honor to uh, go through Psalm 12 with you all this morning. So that's what we'll be going through. Um, we've been going through the book of Mark as a series, and then every summer we decide to take a break and jump into the Psalms. So we'll eventually go through every single Psalm uh, 40 years from now. So <laughs> it'll be a nice, uh, nice long journey with you all. But Psalms are wonderful. And uh, just a reminder, Psalms were, were songs that were sung amongst believers within the temples, passed on from generation to generation. What a beautiful picture of um, kids singing these, these psalms and then growing up and having their children sing these psalms. And in a sense, it's, it's a beautiful picture. And in another sense, I'm very fortunate that I don't have to stand up here and sing this to you. So we will be preaching through it this morning. So uh, if you are able, please, why don't you stand and uh, read Psalm 12 with me. Psalm 12, the faithful have vanished. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of our Lord. Would you please pray with me one more time? Uh, Father God, uh, stand up here, Lord, nervous. Lord, um, fearful of you that I am bringing your word to your saints, God. And I confess, I, I affirm that this is what's taking place. Lord, it is not my job up here to impress. It is not my job up here to to convict hearts of man, Lord, it is your job. And God, I, I fall under humbly the authority of your scripture. Lord, I know that it is your words that give life. And Lord, I am thankful for this church that strives to ensure that your word is spoken to your people in a day where the world is corrupt, where corruption reigns throughout the tongues of man. So, Father, would you, through your Holy Spirit, use these words. Lord, help me to speak clearly to your people. And for those who are here that may not know you, God, I pray that these words would pierce hearts this morning. That today would be the day of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, imagine that I tasked you all with an assignment today. As you leave church... Your assignment would be to just go simply observe the happenings within our country, right? So this would include uh, watching all the news feeds, dabbling in politics, looking through thousands and thousands of social media feeds, standing in long lines at the grocery stores, visiting prisons, hospitals, 
And then after all this is done and your observations are complete, you would then have to write a, a summary, basically, on your findings. And the summary would, would have to be basically painting a realistic picture of what life looks like today. And here's the kicker. You would have to do it in under two sentences or less. Now, what do you think your findings would conclude? Um, what would you say? Would you even be able to fit your conclusion in under two sentences? Some of you are probably thinking, I can do it in three words. Help us, Lord. Or maybe even one word. Yikes. And clearly, I don't need to take time this morning to stand up here and embellish the depravity and debauchery we're seeing in our world today. And I imagine that the majority of our findings would probably be somewhat similar to each other. I would even go as far as to say that our findings would be somewhat similar to that of David nearly 3,000 years ago. See, David nails what I believe to be a spot-on two-sentence summary that paints a realistic picture of what life looks like today. That can even relate to society today. It's found in verse 1 and 8. Let's read verse 1 and 8. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. See, a helpful tool when you read through the Psalms is to ask, what is the mood? What is the author's mood within the text? Well, here David seems to be overwhelmed, frustrated, uh, disgusted, feeling isolated amongst men. As if he's observed humanity around him and he's come to the conclusion that iniquity abounds. Wickedness prevails. The culture is in decay and the godly are nowhere to be seen in the midst of it all. I mean, can you think of anything more fitting than what we're seeing around us today? I mean, it's, it's often a struggle for me to try and make sense of what's going on and, and, and just keeping up to date with everything that I see in the news the things that I'm hearing out in the community, the things that are out in social media, it's literally unbelievable at times. Absolute truth is being exchanged for whatever people feel they want to believe. The world is literally turning upside down. And if you were to generalize the American church, she's not looking too good either. Sex abuse scandals, embezzlement, abusive leadership... Blurring the lines between men and women's roles. Exchanging the teaching of God's word for whatever will pack the house or whatever the culture wants to hear. It's interesting, I've read several commentaries on Psalm 12 that span across multiple time periods. And it was fascinating how nearly every single one of these commentaries mentioned how fitting this psalm was for their generation. Interesting. As a result of this, one theologian describes this psalm as the common complaint of all times. The common complaint of the church, excuse me, the common complaint of the church of all times. Now as bad as we think the world is today, as Jeff mentioned last week, the truth is, it was bad way before us. And every generation of Christian can re relate to this lament here in Psalm 12 this morning. Now as Christians, we should have a solid grasp on the doctrine of depravity. Right? Namely, what sin is, how sin started, what to expect in a world where sin runs rampant. So on one hand, we really shouldn't be surprised when we see how vile and corrupt the world is. I mean, second, uh, passages like 2 Timothy 3 provide a clear view. Let's go to 2 Timothy uh, verses 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. Godlessness in the last days. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So on the other hand, even though we should expect it, it still stings when we experience sin's power. I mean, it can be brutally shocking at times and overwhelming when it becomes real and personal to us. As if you're going to plan a trip to Vegas, you should probably expect to see and hear things that are unpleasant. But yet, when you get there, it'll still have a massive shock factor when you encounter it in person. See, while David probably knows what to expect from the effects of sin on man, it seems to still pack a punch. And in our text, he laments over the corrupted words of man. And then he finds his hope in the pure words of God. So our focus this morning is really a contrast here between man's words and God's words. That the words of man are powerfully corrupt, but the words of the Lord are supremely pure. The words of man are powerfully corrupt, but the words of the Lord are supremely pure. I'm going to unpack this in three points. Our first one will be the power of man's word. Now this won't necessarily be an exposition, but I think that this is needed to really set the, the, the stage for our text. So the power of man's words will be the first point. Corruption's power over man's words will be the second. And the supreme purity of God's word will be the third. So let's dive in. The power of man's words. Speech is obviously something we develop at a very early age, and it sure doesn't take long to start seeing sin's effects on it. Right? I mean, not too long after we mumble our first words, do we then learn like, hey, these can be used to get things I want. I can use these to manipulate others. And shortly after, we then use our words as an offensive attack to hurt those who, who upset us. Well, then later we get to the schoolyard where we learn that other kids are armed with harmful words in which we have to come up with the most advanced defense mechanisms to respond. And that's where we pull out nuggets like, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say to me bounces off of me and sticks to you. Boom. And I know you are, but what am I? And then my all-time favorite, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Fact-checking seems to be the thing that everyone's doing these days. So I think that this phrase could use a pass for the old fact-check machine. I mean, while sticks and stones we know surely can break bones, are words really harmless? I mean, could they never hurt you? I thought it'd be interesting to, uh, <laughs> to go on the Google machine and see what adults now think about this mantra decades after they left school and experienced life out in the real world. And there were some pretty interesting modifications. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will break my heart. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can paralyze me. But words will knock me down. But words will forever haunt me. 
One blogger writes, what is that old children's rhyme? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Anyone who says that does not understand the power of words. They can cut deeper than any knife, hit harder than any fist, touch parts of you that nothing physical will ever reach, and the wounds that some words leave never heal because each time the word is thrown at you or labeled on you, you bleed afresh from it. Now, certainly it should be taken into consideration that the power of words can be used in good ways, right? We know that as believers, Christians with a controlled tongue, we could speak words of life and truth through the gospel message. And we could share wisdom that God has given us to others out in the world. But David in this text is not celebrating the fact that he is just overjoyed from being surrounded by nothing but righteous speech. Rather, he seems to convey the opposite, he, that he's surrounded by nothing but corrupted speech. Words that hurt. Words that deceive. And the godly are nowhere to be found in the midst of all. I mean, it's so bad that David cries out to the Lord for rescue. Look with me in verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Now, as a side note, David literally is not saying that he's the last godly man on earth. Rather, he's using hyperbole to describe a very real sense of emotion that he feels like the godly are just becoming scarce amongst a sea of wickedness. Do you feel like that at times with what's going on in our world? I mean, even in the church, as hard as it is to say, you see so many blending in like the world, that the world is just kind of smothering the godly. And while studying this, I found myself reading verses 1 and 4 over and over and over, and I kept coming back to the same question. Why is corrupted speech so prevalent amongst humanity? I mean, in our culture, both the young and the old, for you with kids, have you been on a playground in a park lately? You're amazed at what comes out of just little kids' mouths. Why is corrupted speech in everything? Media, games, corporations, government, churches. What happened? As I thought about how powerful our words are and how important it is that we guard them, it made me think of those movies with that, that power plot where like the good guys have to protect that all-time powerful thing from the bad guys because if they got their hands on it, wickedness would just prevail. Well, I was brought back to Genesis and I was reminded that our powerful words were taken over. And they did fall into the wrong hands. Man's powerful words have been seized by sin. And they're in the hands of Satan. So let's unpack this a bit as we look at our second point. Corruption's power over man's words. Corruption's power over man's words. Genesis provides a lot of first for us, right? It's the first book of the Bible. It tells of the first human beings, the first creation account, the first death. But it also introduces to us the first liar, the very first liar. And he's known as the father of lies, and his name is Satan. Now, Satan has several other names, one of which is the god of this world, which kind of help, helps to make sense of why this world is so messed up. But is this something that you're reminded of often? I mean, it's pretty impactful to reflect on the fact that this world that we live in, brothers and sisters, is Satan's playground. We dwell in his playground. John 12, 31 says that he, Satan, is the ruler of this world. First John states that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And John 8, 44 indicates that he is the, the spiritual father of unbelievers because they display his characteristics. 
Let's go to John chapter 8, verse 44. John 8, 44. Jesus tells the Pharisees here, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Now get this. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He speaks out of his own character. That can also be said that when he lies, he speaks his native language. Lying is Satan's native language. So we live in a world where not only Satan rules, but he's out making disciples, influencing billions and billions of human beings to take on his characteristics, to speak his native language. So quick confession, I have this amazing spiritual gift where I make up words when I talk to people, and it's not even intentional, and it's really cool. And I seriously, I don't know what it is, but when I get rocking and rolling in conversation, I'll just be crushing it, and then this word comes out, and my wife will kind of stop and look at me and be like, well, what did you just say? And she'll be like, yeah, that's not a word. <laughs> the other day I was hanging out with some friends, and I wanted to tell one of my buddies he was manly, and I said, manular, you're... You're, you're, you're very manular, and they were kind of like, what? Well, the good news is, is this spiritual gift is being passed on to my youngest son. And the other day, he popped off some w random word, and my wife looked up at me and just started laughing and said, oh, look at that. Micah speaks your special language. You guys speak the same language. Church, when we speak words filled with lies, emptiness, flattery, gossip, filth, we are speaking Satan's native language. We're emulating his characteristics. The world is fluent in Satan's language, imitating him, yet scripture tells us believers that we have a new master. And it calls us to be imitators of Christ and to let no unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. You see the contrast. Well, Genesis also introduces to us sin as a result of Adam and Eve being deceived by Satan's lies. The result is that Humanity is born with hearts that are rock solid. And the Bible tells us that it's out of these hearts our mouths then speak. So interesting. So corrupt words then are formed by diseased hearts. And this helps us to understand why man's speech is overtaken by corruption. So jumping back into our verse, we see corruption's power overtaking man's words in the form of three effects. First, we see corruption's power over man's words produce vain lies. Let's look in verse 2. Psalm 12, verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. We can stop there. Lying is Satan's primary tactic that he uses against believers and unbelievers. And what's interesting here is that David uses a very specific word in the form of, li uh, of lies here in verse 2. And the Hebrew word lies is really meant to convey vanity. Vanity in the form of worthlessness. That everyone utters emptiness to his neighbor. Luther explained it as uttering profitless things to their neighbor. So David's essentially saying that everyone around him, everyone's conversations are empty and irrelevant. People are talking about nothing. Is this not a perfect picture of what we're seeing around us today, church? I mean, especially considering how much social media has influenced our lives dare I say, for the worst. R.C. Sproul used to say, we have turned our brains off and we don't care to think anymore. 
Logic is tossed aside while contradiction is prized as the true hallmark of faith. I mean, what a crafty tactic from Satan. Trivialize everything. Distort truth with lies. And best of all, let's fill up people's lives with irrelevant, meaningless, empty stuff. So we don't have to think or talk about real things anymore. Like, who am I? Why am I here? What is life for? What comes next? Instead, we prefer to fill our conversations up with the latest fads, viral videos, or reality TV shows, and we consume our time in a sea of worthlessness. Billions of posts, tweets, talking about nothing. Truth drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Church, let me encourage you, if you are finding yourself drowning in the sea of irrelevance this morning, get out. Turn off social media, the TV, whatever it is. Feed your mind with a healthy diet to ensure that it's active in thinking, that it's guarded against Satan's schemes. Now, don't hear me say that these things, it, just in general, just bad and sin to take part in. But do hear me warn you of how much it consumes your daily habits. How much is it taking you away from the, the life-giving, spiritually healthy things? See, this empty speech of our world, it has no nutrients. It's, it's junk food. I love junk food. And I've seen what happens when I eat too much junk food. <laughs> but this junk food can also be used as bait to lure you into an even bigger trap, fam. So take caution. Enjoy these things in the world to God's glory and moderation, but ensure your soul is mostly being fed with things that will nourish your spirit. What does this look like? Well, becoming a member of a church is a great first step. Stay close to your flock, your shepherds. Dedicate yourself to home groups, discipleship. Fill your time up with God's people. Feed your mind with his word. The Bible says that his word is a light unto our path, and it will light up the darkness and guide us through this life. Well, second, corruption's power over man's words produces flattery. Corruption's power over man's words produces flattery. Let's look again in verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. See, we understand flattery to be saying only what people want to hear or perhaps only hearing what, what you want people to say about you. And while that certainly applies here in our text, the word here more conveys that of a smooth talker. Those who know how to manipulate others with smooth words. Calvin had a great metaphor he used, labeling two types of unrighteousness that inhabit our earth. He said, we live in a world of lions and foxes. Lions who conduct unrighteousness through physical violence. And foxes who conduct unrighteousness through smooth lips and cunning tactics. Here David's referring to the foxes that surround him. Political speech is notorious for this type of flattery. People say smoothly what others want to hear, all the while they have some deceitful agenda going on on the back end. Back end. And they're using their words to get something they want. Out of double hearts they speak, David says. The literal translation here means that they have a heart and a heart. Interesting. A heart for the church and a heart for the world. A heart for you. And a heart that's against you. A heart for righteousness and a heart for unrighteousness. See, the Israelites were called out by our Lord for this 
very issue. He said that they would draw near with their mouth and honor him with their lips, all the while their hearts were far, far from him. See, church, flattery doesn't just occur between people like you and I. Think about how many times we try to flatter God as the Israelites did. The times we come to church on a Sunday to honor him with our mouths and our lips, all the while our hearts are far from him. The times that we praise God with our tongues and then we turn right around and curse somebody who's made in his image. Telling God only what you think he wants to hear by offering empty prayers or only hearing from God what you want to hear. Perhaps ignoring hard truths that he's trying to communicate to you through his word and only focusing on what's pleasant or maybe convenient. No doubt we've all been foxes at times. Third, corruption's power over man's words produce boasting and self-worship. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? See, boasting is the speech of pride. And when we use our powerful words for pride, it's a serious, serious offense. God hates prideful speech. Because pride is 100% opposition to him who alone deserves all the glory. And the word tells us that God will not share his glory with anyone. And pride is essentially giving ourselves the credit for the things that God is doing in our lives. We're stealing glory from the Most High. Well, David knows this, which is why the arrogant speech that surrounds him frustrates and angers him. And because there's no apparent judgment in that time, in that moment, the boastful believe that they're getting away with it. They believe that they're their own gods and they're not going to be punished. And that f- deceives them to further believe that they are masters of their own fate. Stealing glory from God, then claiming to be God themselves. Does that sound familiar? See, pride is the very thing that Satan was cast out of heaven for. It's, it's yet another characteristic of his that he wants the world to emulate. Independence from God and steal as much glory from God as you can. So man's words are corrupted by the power of sin and Satan. And we see its effects through widespread lying, worthless speech, flattery, and boasting. The world is speaking Satan's native language all around us while the godly seem to be disappearing. And the wicked continue to get louder and louder as if they will never have to answer to God. If this psalm were to end here, be pretty hopeless and depressing. But thankfully, the psalm doesn't end here. And like many other psalms, David runs to the Lord for hope and refuge. We see this often in psalms. But the security David finds in Psalm 12 comes from uh, words that are not from man. They come from words that he can trust. The supreme purity of God's word. And this is our last point. The supreme purity of God's word. See, where the first four, uh, first four verses, David expressed his disgust over the corrupt speech of man, and then he sort of pivots to express the greatness of God's word. First, we see that the purity of God's word makes it trustworthy. The purity of God's word makes it trustworthy. Let's look at verses 6. We're going to jump to verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Purity is a very powerful word, which I think has been a little devalued in our culture. I mean, think of advertisements and marketing that you, you see and hear around you. 
Dasani brands itself as being pure drinking water. Grocery store shelves are lined with 100% pure fruit juice, yet can sit on a shelf for over two months. The purest gold that exists in the world is 24 karat gold. But when it comes down to numbers, it's dubbed as 100% pure. But when it comes down to the numbers, it's not. Because no metal on earth can be 100% pure. Because if air, something as simple as air touches, it oxidizes. And that brings on an impurity. It has to sit in something. It has to touch it. And even if it's microscopic, it'll get an impurity. So 24 karat gold is actually 99.99% pure. It's close, but it's not 100%. Back when I did construction, a buddy, of <laughs> a buddy and I, we created our own classification of contractors that we would come across. And we called them GE contractors, good enough contractors. And these were the ones that uh, if, if, if something was in the ballpark, then it was good enough. And they'd just kind of move on with the project. So imagine them trying to level something. And as long as that bubble was like somewhere in between those two lines, good enough. Let's move on. Putting pieces of trim together and like, hey, as long as it's touching, who cares about that big gap? It's good enough. Right? Do your best and caulk the rest. <laughs> you know, if they hit one, one out of every five nails hits a stud when they're sheeting, good enough. Move on. <laughs> but church, our God is not a good enough God. He's perfect. He's perfect. Purity is one of the Lord's attributes, so he gets to set the standard of how we define it. If God is only good enough, or if God is only 99.99% anything, he ceases to be God. Do you get that? He has to be 100% everything. So purity then is defined as total separation from anything that contaminates. It's faultless. It's uncompromised. The number seven among the Jews resembled perfection. Seven times purified is the same as saying that God's words are 100% faultless, 100% uncompromised. They're 100% untouched by any impurities. So what does this mean? It means that everything God says in his word is true and therefore can be trusted. What God says in his word is 100% what he means to say. There is no, I know I said this, but what I meant was this. <laughs> he does not lie. He does not flatter. And what he means to say is 100% truth. And we could bank on that. So think about this. Man's words are powerfully corrupt and God's words are supremely pure. Yet isn't it funny how it's always man that tries to convince us that God's word is false? It's man out there that's flapping their gums telling you not to believe in the word of God. And God's over here saying, my word is true, and it will never change, and it's pure. Well, who are you listening to these days? Who are you placing your hope in to restore you in these dark times? Is it man? Be careful. Are you listening to God and what he says in his word? If you aren't in his word and striving to learn it, you're missing out on the only pure thing we have in a corrupted world. The only pure thing. Now, if you've been playing this whole, I'm not really sure I can believe the Bible or fully trust what it says in your head, please, let me exhort you to stop and just trust. See, it's 2022, and I don't think that's a valid excuse anymore, if I'm being frank. I don't think it ever was. And here's why. Because God's word has been tried and tested for thousands of years. 
Thousands of years, the same word has been tried and tested. It's seen everything. And it's been called into the courtroom over and over and over by skeptics, by scientists, by advances in technology, by historians, by archaeologists, by Satan himself, and the greatest minds the world has ever known. But yet it's never been found guilty of error. Why? Because of a lack of evidence. See, God's word, it stood the test of time. What God says in his word is true because his words are 100% pure, which make them supreme over all things. We should cherish this, brothers and sisters. Second, we see that the purity of God's word provides deliverance. Let's look in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. This word arise here in verse 5 is used to convey a swift course of action. That as the Lord has been patient with the world, forbearing the sins of man, watching while they live in rebellion to him, and act as if they are their own masters, there will come a day where he swoops in like a thief in the night to execute his final judgment. This is real. Matthew 12, 36 tells us that here on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word spoken. Yet while this will be the most dreadful day in history for sinners in the world, the Lord says it will be a day for his people to finally be placed in the safety for which they have longed. We see this contrast often in scripture where the Lord separates the wheat from the chaff. Or he separates the barren trees from the trees that bear fruit. Where the trees that bear fruit are stored up and the barren trees are cut down and burned. So on one hand, this will be a horrifying day for the wicked where they have to pay for their sins themselves. And the wages of these sins are eternal death. Eternal suffering in hell with Satan separated from a pure and holy God. And on the other hand, this will be the best day ever for the children of God as they finally get to be with their long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, who paid for the wages on the cross. He paid for the wages of their sin already. One theologian says, it is better to have the tongue touched with a live coal from the altar than to be cut out. Do you remember in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah stands before the holy God and he is overwhelmed by the pureness, the holiness of God. And he confesses what? I'm a man of unclean lips. And he, and he pronounces a curse on himself. And he's so convicted, he says, I come from a world of unclean lips. And then what happens? A seraphim flies over and grabs tongs and flies over to the altar of atonement and grabs a coal. And he presses it against David's lips, searing them to purify them. And he says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. Church, behold your Christ, who takes away your guilt and is atoned for your sin. Christ is the greatest sacrifice to end the burning altar by fully satisfying God's justice. Christ, who's liberated us from our corrupt words so that we can now use them for that which is good, to testify to the holiness, to testify to the grace of God. Now, saints, I know it's convicting of me to even speak these words because we can feel as if we're in the in-between, right? The, the already but not yet, as it is often called, where we've, we've tasted of God's grace through Christ. We've even seen personal growth in our own holiness 
with our words. I remember when I was saved, I was in the Navy, and that is the most transformational place you can be when it comes to words. People were like, what happened to Dave? Um, we, we see this growth. We see this transforming power. But yet, while Christ has freed us from being enslaved to these corrupt words, we, we still want to go back, right? We, we still want to talk like the world. That temptation is always there. But a day is coming, brothers and sisters, where we'll finally get to experience being 100% pure. A day where we don't have to say I'm sorry to one another over something that we've said ever again. Because our words will no longer be under the power of corruption. Amen to that. So church, let's grow in patience as we wait for this day while we're surrounded by a world where sin and Satan temporarily reign in the mouths of the wicked. Let us run to the, to the pure words of the Lord as David did to find our hope and our peace. Trust what God says, everything. Trust that every single word in this book, what God says is true. And he will do what he says. Especially when it comes to deliverance. So as the chaos of this world increases, increase your time in his word. Increase your time with other saints. Increase your time in the church. Join the worship team. <laughs> That's all the only reason why I came up here is just to plug the worship team. If you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, I exhort you to think deeply about these words that I'm saying. Think deeply about the final days. Listen and read to what God says in his pure word. Stop listening to the lies of man's corrupted speech because they're hollow. They're empty. And they're just only going to disappoint you. John 20 says that these words here are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That means that you won't have to, to pay for your own sins. He will take those upon himself. See, God left us with the truth of his word so that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ. Without him, you will have to face God. You will have to give an account for every careless word that you've spoken. And you will have to do it all on your own. And that is fact. So let's close on our third and final point. We see the purity of God's word preserves and protects. We see that the purity of God's word preserves and protects. Look with me in verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. The heart of the gospel message is that God has sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to rescue and redeem his elect, his people from their sins so that they can dwell with him for all eternity. One of the massive benefits of Christ being the one chosen for this mission is that he is the 100% pure word the Bible speaks of. It means that he'll do it. Christ won't give up. He's not going to mess up. He won't be conquered which means he will not lose any of whom God tasked him to rescue. He will not lose one. So rescuing 99% of God's people is a failed mission. Do you realize that? If one is left behind, it's a failure. But God won't do that. He is going to rescue. He's, he's not a good enough God. He, he'll rescue 100%, every single one of them. And the parable of the lost sheep tells us this in Luke. So this beautiful truth comforts us that he will preserve and he will protect us while we're surrounded by many on this corrupt earth. While we feel that wickedness is winning. 
it won't in the end. Let's read John 6, 38 through 40. John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that the mission is not to keep us from persecution. It's not to keep us from physical harm while we're in this world. But the mission is to ensure that we endure through it. That we endure. That Christ will hold us fast while we're in the world. While we're carrying out the great commission amongst hostile people. We will be raised up on the last day. You can bank on that. So let's end with this commentary from Brian Chappell. He says, Though for a time the wicked are exalted in this fallen world, God's covenantal protection of his people will last from generation to generation. When the believer feels overwhelmed by systemic evil and is disheartened as an apparent minority standing for truth, this psalm will lead him to the only one who can save. In the meantime, Christ's promise of justice provides hope. Behold, I am coming soon bringing recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Revelation 22. Church, I hope you leave this morning with this mantra in mind. While the world sticks and stones may break my bones, God's word will always preserve me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your pure, pure words. God, we thank you that as, <laughs> as weird as it even sounds standing up here, swearing by your word, banking on its truth, Lord, that it is what it says it is. God, forgive us for the times that this word has collected dust on our tabletops. Um, it's been neglected. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to, to see it as 100% pure. Lord, for those who, who wrestle with the truth of your word, God, I pray that you would rip open their heart to believe. Lord, to, to run to your word as David has. And God, most of all, I just want to thank you for GCF, for what you're doing at this church. I thank you for our leadership, our elders, who toil day after day to ensure that your word is being proclaimed from this pulpit that won't cave to what culture wants to see, what will make us rich, what will make us popular. God, thank you for our elders. And Lord, I can only imagine how much of a struggle it is for them to stay on this. You say the narrow path is, is hard if you find it. So Lord, bless our church. Bless the saints of this church. God, I pray for the men of these families that you would empower them to lead using your word, that they would shower their family in your word. God, that you would protect us while we're here from Satan's schemes, from the lions and the foxes. God, help us. Thank you for Jesus Christ and for what he's done that we can bank on his promises forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.